and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Take the Red Pill, Understanding the Allure of Conspiratorial Thinking Among Proud Boys, with Samantha Kuttner, in discussion with Michael Marshall. It was first broadcast live on the 1st of October 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics of the Pub Online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Uh, Samantha, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. Um, So let's to to jump right into it, uh, I guess. Um, We've seen the mention now, it turns out, in presidential debates. And I promise to all our viewers, we didn't set that up as promotion for this event. That was organic, uh, organically happening. Um, But for people who aren't aware, um, who are the Proud Boys? The Proud Boys, this is going to be a mouthful, but this is accurate, (laughs) are a violent, crypto-fascist, extremist organization. They were temporarily classified as an extremist organization with ties to white nationalism in 2018. That was rescinded. Um, I believe lawmakers are potentially reconsidering that classification. Um, But the crypto-fascism is a very interesting component. They veil their language. They don't really give the game away or reveal their power level. That makes them harder to pin down because their public image they try to present is being a fraternal drinking organization. But they're far more uh, insidious than that. And so... A lot of people, when they hear about a group like that, they'll do what would consider, in in many cases, to be a a fairly sensible thing of keeping as far away from them them as possible and wanting very little to do with them. Um, Obviously, that isn't the the approach you've taken with the work that you do. So what kind of approach do you take with your work to do that kind of um, the research that you're you're undertaking? Um, Well, I always balance care and accountability Um, on the care side. I, I do call myself the Proud Boys Whisperer and one of my missions is to model what proper social skills look like so proud boys can find their forever homes (laughs) kind of sweet (laughs) Uh, a lot of them it's easy to understand when someone is in a vulnerable position how they can come to embrace this type of ideology Um, i operate on the assumption that there is a learning that occurred And there is an unlearning that can occur. You're not necessarily telling these people what to think, and you shouldn't. Um, But there is a very interesting media ecosystem that they inhabit. And if you introduce yourself into that system and you're like, oh, hey, you're talking about this. Would you actually like to hear? And you don't say a legitimate news source, but if you understand the grievances and the values, you can find information because the the far right narratives, they're like emotional appeals and disinformation. Uh, I go for uh, potentially emotional appeals, understanding and actual information. And that over time has helped facilitate the disengagement of several Proud Boys. Yeah. And, and how, how when, you, when it comes to doing your work, um, how are you finding people to, to speak to? What kind of places are you having those conversations? What does the, the I guess, the format of your work actually look like? Um, so I conducted an online ethnography, which involves one on one asynchronous interviews and being immersed in the environment. Uh, I've interviewed anti-fascists in person 
but uh, I've done calls, uh, Zoom calls, uh, Twitter conversations, Facebook messages, Instagram conversations. Uh, one of the things is just meeting people where they're at in their preferred communication. Um, me and my research peer, C. Vitolo Haddad, were uh, probably the only two people in the country who got IRB approval to conduct ethnographic research with Proud Boys before their accounts were suspended from Twitter and Facebook. Um, so it's a very interesting, rare data set, and we've got to mm. see where they've kind of moved and how they're trying to kind of creep back on the mainstream platforms. And, and so we've touched on the, the, the fact that they're, you know, a violent white supremacist, a crypto fascist organization. Um, before we go into how people end up in those places, um, would you mind just summarizing some of the things that the Proud Boys believe as a, as, as a group or some of the ideas that they put forward, some of the philosophies they ascribe to? Mm -hmm. um, so the ideas they put forward are more like the aesthetic of ideas. They have the libertarian, don't tread on me, uh, venerate the housewife, glorify the entrepreneur. Mm. Um, but to understand how they really are, you have to look at the incidents that they have targeted, co-attended, and organized. Mm. And when you see who they're targeting who you see what they're like in favor of, who you see who they're trying to align with, um, the, the fascist ideology becomes much more pronounced. And I know fascism tends to be, uh, you know, an ad hominem attack against anyone you disagree with, but this has been objectively, um, you know, just quantified, classified, and approved by an inter uh, international counterterrorism community. Um, so the, the aesthetic is of libertarianism, Mm -hmm. And like minimal government, maximal freedom. But the actual agenda they're advancing is fascist. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, as I understand it, there, there are many of their beliefs in terms of their, their fascist kind of um, goals, many of their beliefs around things like um, white genocide, uh, belief that certain races have certain superiorities, have certain control. Um, would you mind just speaking to that for a moment just so we can get some, uh, I guess, foundations for we can we can move on for people who might not know very much about what it is that they actually say? Right. Um, so Gavin McGinnis actively, the former, uh, the founder of the Proud Boys who stepped back but didn't really step back, um, uh, was promoting white genocide theories, um, which are essentially black and brown bodies being an existential threat. Uh, Proud Boys try to make the distinction that they are civic nationalists, uh, where they're like unified by culture rather than race. And they say the alt-right, which they say they're not, <laughs> uh, believe in race realism and mm. uh, ethno-nationalism, which is focused on race. Um, but white genocide is really like uh, there's an existential crisis and it's black and brown bodies who are to blame. Uh, one really interesting layer to that is, uh, I forget who originally said this, but during Charlottesville, uh, you remember the chance Jews will not replace us. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't about Jews physically replacing people. That was the conspiratorial belief that Jews are uh, advancing immigration, and it's the immigration that is leading to the white replacement or white genocide. Got it. So essentially, Jews will not replace us with other people who are black, brown. Uh, immigrant uh, communities, things like that. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so it seems pretty clear the kind of threat a group like the, the, the Proud Boys could represent. Um, but 
as you, you've talked about, you know, you, you've that some of the, the members are, are vulnerable. They're people. They're human beings. Once over, they may have just been regular guys on the, on the street. Uh, in your experience, how do people find their way into a violent extremist group like this? You know, what are the initial entry points, and then how does it advance from there? Um, to understand how Proud Boys advance, uh, you have to understand the red pill. It is a reference to the Matrix, where Neo has the choice of taking the blue pill and uh, just going on with life as is, or taking the red pill and opening his eyes to this new reality. Taking the red pill in the context of the Proud Boys means awakening to the reality of male subjugation by women under feminism. And once you believe that it is this insidious feminist agenda that is ruining your life, you're, you know, discounting your own ownership of your problems. Um, but it becomes much easier to see marginalized communities as causing you harm, too. Mm. So that's the first conspiratorial thing along those gendered lines that pulls many people in. And that's what makes them... Uh, the group and their media ecosystem such disinformation vectors because they start from that position of the world is out to get me. I'm not at fault for anything. Who's to blame? It's women. It's feminists. It's LGBTQ. It's all of these things, right? It's never them. And that's yeah. not psychologically adaptive in the long run. So that get, keeps people constantly searching for evidence of their own failures that they don't want to take responsibility for. Yeah, so it's kind of the outsourcing of, of, of accountability to external targets. And you know, the, the reason my life isn't going the way that uh, I might have been taught to expect it to go or might reasonably expect it to go isn't anything I've been doing or a, a victim of circumstance. It's a deliberate plot by the them who therefore can be othered and, and, and attacked and, uh, and and be the targets of violence beyond there. Is that, is that kind of a fair assumption, I suppose? Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting mix of being the aggressor while believing that you're the victim. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of some of their communication styles reflect what they feel to be victimhood uh, and also highlight their aggressive nature, which is uh, probably get into that further along the line, but it's a very interesting mix of victim, aggressor, super powerful defenders of the West and yet emasculated by the liberal media. Yeah, I mean, I definitely do want to come back to that. Um, but I, I guess if we're sort of following the process, I mean, the the, the red pill is the the moment that uh, they they wake up to the reality uh, as they're they're told around them. Um, how do people know where to get the red pill from? Who who is the uh, who is acting as the um, the Lawrence Fishburne <laughs> handing them the red pill here? How do they enter to to even find the the red pill? Is there is there a commonality there, or are there sort of certain points to be aware of? Uh, there's a few things. I'll start with, um, I say swiping right to reflect a casual endorsement. Um, so people can view the protests and just have a general thought, well, you know, they're damaging property. So, uh, and Mm. that's kind of a casual endorsement of, um, some of like the far right thinking. There's not a concern or understanding that black lives should matter. There's like, is the property okay? Was the property hurt? Was the property damaged? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and 
through there, they could get more curious and search, you know, like, well, what is the property description level of blah, blah, blah. Uh, they probably won't think like that. But there's some grievance that pulls them to seek out more information. And then it usually brings them to a YouTube channel where a Gavin McGinnis, like, techno parent figure mm-hmm. um, starts spreading their humor. And uh, through that, they they can come to... Uh, far-right organizations and groups. I've seen Gavin McGinnis uh, talk about being kicked off Twitter on YouTube to have Proud Boys in the comments actively trying to recruit people. Like, here's where you can find us. Um, But uh, there's casual endorsements. That's one pathway. There are um, getting radicalized while really thinking you're being entertained, which is the allure of the Gavin McGinnis's, Jordan Peterson, Stephen Molyneux, Mm-hmm. Uh, Goad. Um, and then there is the Manosphere. Have you heard that one? Yes, yeah, but I think many many of our uh, viewers may not have heard that. So uh, if you want to give a little bit of background there. So uh, the Manosphere is a disparate collective of male grievance communities. Um, uh, after you take the red pill and you kind of embrace this idea that all men are subjugated by women under feminism, there are different pathways that you can take. Um, so you could become a pickup artist and essentially gamify yourself out of any meaningful relationship with mm-hmm. women, uh, the kind of notch in the bedpost thing. There's also incredibly manipulative tactics that they use. Um, so it's like really like manipulate your way into someone's bedroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is... Uh, MGTOW or men going their own way where they uh, just say, you know, screw this. I'm going to self segregate from women, which that's, that's perfectly normal. Right. Um, and then there is the black pill, which is super nihilistic uh, and uh, depressive and, you know, like what's the matter? Like what's the use? Uh, and then in that kind of like in between space it are things like, Improve your life, better yourself, knowing the odds are stacked against you. Hmm. Uh, And my undergrad degree is in psychology. I'm not a psychologist, but that is incredibly psychologically maladaptive to hold those two thoughts and uh, and think that you are empowering yourself, but it's futile at the same time. Um, But then there's Proud Boys, the, the radical traditionalists, the ones who want this 1950s nostalgia they have in their minds that didn't even really exist in the way that they imagine it to exist where you know women are the happy homemakers they you know they know their place in the world and therefore men know their place in the world again Mm. and you know everyone has their own preference for some women work and are also married with kids some women just work and you know stay or just stay at home or just work um And uh, it's ultimately a choice. Whenever you say all women should do this or all men should do this or all men are like this or all women are like this, you get into a really uh, psychologically rigid territory that's just not a fun headspace to be in. Yeah, yeah. And so um, once we've kind of got that that manosphere, you've been red-pilled. I know you've written quite a lot about this, and I was reading your recent piece for uh, the the Georgetown Journal of uh, International Affairs, and I, I was struck by the the seeming kind of organized and structured nature of the recruitment process from red pilling to desensitizing, even to degrees of initiation. So would you mind elaborating on the, the desensitizing and the, and the degrees and, and their purpose too? Uh, yes. 
Um, so the first degree involves creating a video where you state that you are a proud Western chauvinist who refuses to apologize for creating the modern world. Uh, and that video serves the function of announcing your commitment to the group and also um, it's harder to like I could never join the Proud Boys because I am female. They have kind of an auxiliary unit called Proud Boys Girls who are the absolute worst. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, only men can be members. Uh, so you state that you're not really given rights or permissions until you get into your second degree. The second degree involves a serial beat in which Gavin McGinnis has described internally as a form of adrenaline control. But when you look outwardly, you see what this is. This You have to name five breakfast cereals as people punch you. And until you name the five, you're not a member. So there's a an absurdism and a an irony, satire, humor that they use to veil this conditioning process. Mm -hmm. I mean, understand what it's like for people to get jumped into gangs. But with Proud Boys, there's something about both extremism that comes wrapped in the American flag and the humor they use to deflect yeah. the reality of what they're actually doing. And that's what makes them one of the most dangerous organizations because there's still room for plausible deniability. There's still room for the average reporter to talk to them and be like, that sounds mildly reasonable. And then have a lot of my work where people ask me to come into the public is just like, please don't, please don't do this. <laughs> here's here's mm. why you don't do this. Uh, and uh, yeah, so as they're getting initiated into the group and kind of like joining, attending uh, meetings, their, uh, their telegram channels and other platforms that they communicate on are flooded with memes and images. Um, I know this because a, an Australian proud boy uh, attempted to desensitize me through memes and said, by the end, you'll have no soul. And uh, his goal was, I, I mean, it sounded ridiculous at the time. And I was, I was telling him to put on his researcher hat and I could say, you know, send me whatever you want, but as you send them, classify them. So we came up okay. with like a, a Scoville, like heat index of my, <laughs> to like Carolina Reaper, which was content that some of the proud boys had taken from alt-right circles, depicting, um, showing actual like decapitations and violence. Uh, and, uh, you know, usually done in private messages where they're like, don't snitch, don't tell anybody. Um, so repeated exposure to that and repeated narratives, like, um, you, you can start by swiping, right. Have being upset about the protest for some reason, being brought in, be exposed to content and then be primed. Like the way multi-level marketing people get primed, they're going to tell you it's a scam, but you're going to be ready for them because you make money in scams? No, we like, you know, whatever it is, right? Yeah. The messaging is very similar. They're going to tell you it's not okay to be white. They're going to tell you it's not okay to support our president, but you'll be ready for them. And that, like, that is incredibly destructive because they have that confirmation bias. They're already looking for those messages. Mm. 
And uh, then when it happens, they're like, oh, they were right. And then it like can solidify their commitment. So like by the time someone gets to their third degree where they get a tattoo with either the Proud Boys. Uh, well, it's actually not the Proud Boys. It's the Fred Perry logo that they stole. Um, the uh, Proud of Your Boy, uh, the Rooster, uh, whatever the symbols are for that. Uh, FAFO, which stands for F around and find out. Um that's, uh, you know, that's the increased commitment. And then the fourth degree is probably like the most problematic because it's like getting involved or having some consequence for fighting for your cause, which mm-hmm. many people have interpreted as committing violence. Yeah, uh, one yeah. boy named Geoff Young in New York attacked a Muslim woman and right after updated his profile picture on Facebook to reflect that he had earned his fourth degree. So... Gavin knows what he's doing. He's manipulated media for a very long time, even though Enrique Tarrio, an Afro-Cuban man, is the current chairman of the Proud Boys. He still very much has a hand in it, which is incredible because he is a Canadian citizen. Uh, and there's talk about deporting him. But anyway, i uh, sorry, I went off on a tangent. I would love to say deport Gavin McGinnis for the next hour and a half. But uh, <laughs> uh, so th- those are the degrees and then the process by which they um, become desensitized. And because they've taken that red pill and they've embraced that conspiratorial notion, when somebody says Muslims are invading uh, and they have a training gown, uh, ground in Islamburg, New York, for example, mm. You're already primed. You're already ready to go. You already have the black and brown bodies as an existential threat. And like, it doesn't take much. Um, so there, it's a very organized, very uh, destructive process that people go through uh, where they're increased commitment to, to violence and like targeting of uh, anyone they consider their opposition is, is highly likely. And it, it sort of sounds like the the role of um, that bitter, ironic humor, uh, that like nihilistic humor, the eight chan, four chan kind of uh, winky face while saying something uh, abhorrent, is almost there to kind of sh- act as a, a shield and a plausible deniability through that desensitizing process. And by the time you're through the process and into outright acts of violence, you no longer need the shield, but it's kind of there as a bridge. And, and, I, and I think you've described this practice as, as grooming because potential recruits are kind of kept in the dark about the actual intent of the group they're introduced i guess by having their limits pushed a bit by bit but presumably if this is deliberate and overt um i'd also assume that it would kind of have a a, a pyramid scheme effect where one inductee sort of has to find new recruits i don't know if that's kind of part of it and if that's a fair assumption how do members rationalize the overt nature of the grooming process once they're on the other side of it I don't think they fully understand what they've gotten themselves into. Like by the time you're in it, like uh, they tell someone uh, not to say that all proud boys are hallucinating, but they tell people like in psychological literature, when a person is hallucinating, you don't tell them they're hallucinating because it would make them like angrier. Mm-hmm. Um, like there is a disconnect from reality and a kind of LARPy uh, live action role playing like thing when some of them go to rallies where like to them, it could be like, no, I'm just playing. It's just like cosplay, you know, all that. Um, but that's like where the line gets towed because that's often how people entertain fascist ideas. They may not have had the courage to do just straight out. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's very concerning. <laughs> um, 
one thing that's kind of struck me is that you'd imagine someone involved in a group like this might have um, external calls to, to sense check it, to see whether what they're doing is reasonable, to sort of benchmark their behaviour against the rest of the world. How does the group hold people in and prevent that external criticism forever like reaching any of their members? They have created a completely alternative worldview and a very insular media ecosystem. So all the content that they are consuming, all the rallies that they attend together, all the mm. things they see in the news gets the news gets filtered through this very insular media ecosystem echo chamber. Um, so to them, everything that could potentially persuade them to adopt a more nuanced stance is treated as suspect. Every mm. journalist who asks about the group is treated as uh, someone writing a potential hit piece. Um, I was able to uh, break through to an Australian Proud Boy um, when I, you know, just through the transparency of the IRB process, you know, here's who I am, here's what you'd be expected to do. If you would like to participate, let me know. I will just send you additional information. Mm. Um, and, uh, and he's like, we don't talk to media. And I just said... That's interesting. And he said, what's interesting? And I said, well, you belong to a group that claims to value free speech. And yet you have a leader of your organization telling you who you can and can't speak with. And he's like, send me your questions. so I think viewers who, who may not have known a lot about the Pride Boys probably have a, a good feel for what they're about now. Um, but it feels that we're at this incredibly febrile moment internationally. Uh, we're seeing not just racist and fascist marches in, in the US and the UK as well, but also huge gatherings in support of conspiracy theories like QAnon. Um, where do the Proud Boys and extremist groups like them fit into the, the growth and the, the, the dissemination of those conspiracy theories, do you think? They have mainstreamed communication tactics uh they have mainstreamed the like the edginess and the kind of counter-cultural appeal of traditional conservative values um they are uniquely suited this is why i call them one of the most dangerous extremist organizations in existence <laughs> um they're not clandestine and that's a part of that they hide their stuff in plain sight so they can launder information through the 4chan, 8chan, Gab, Telegram, Daily Caller, uh, like Underworld, <laughs> and um, position themselves outwardly as being anti-establishment while actually positioning themselves to conservative elite. Mm. Um, so they are in between these two worlds and they are mainstreaming and pulling radicalizing content into the mainstream. So sharing uh, images of uh, Dodge Ram with blood on it uh, to make jokes about uh, vehicular assault and murder. When, when ISIS used that as a tactic in France, the whole world looked at alarm. But mm. somehow in America, because of this extremism that becomes wrapped in the American flag, the same attempts to kill American or harm American citizens get passed off as a joke or, well, they shouldn't have been there. Uh, and that's kind of what I, um, 
I talk about more when I reference the term from Kate Shaw, uh, culturally normative psychopathy. Um, there is something about American cruelty that is unique that we've grown accustomed to. We look the other way about there's something we haven't yet acknowledged as a country. And Trump really appeals to that. Proud Boys respond to that. So when Trump says, um, stand down, stand by, something mm. used in supremacist prison gangs, that's a call to action in this mobilized base. But people are like, you know, all the news stories, did he mean that? What were the intentions of that? You know, yeah. like there's still a questioning and we're not there as a country yet to fully understand what's happening. I think we're getting there now. Uh, and I'm glad we're finally understanding. But it's, uh, it is very, very hard to grapple with extremism that seems outwardly as American as apple pie, which is yeah. hilarious because, again, Gavin McGinnis is a Canadian citizen who founded this organization in America in 2016. So he's not even authentic in regard to being an actual patriot. He wants other patriots, American patriots, to do the work for him. Mm. Yeah. Um, just on, on the, the the point on Trump saying uh, was it stand stand uh, stand back stand by. Um, I saw that that was something that was that was said in, in white supremacist prison gangs, and I was I was a little. I wasn't sure where where Trump would have got that from, because had he got it from a white supremacist, that doesn't seem surprising to me that Trump would would know white supremacy, white supremacists. But it's the the prison gang element, um, despite how many criminals he appears to know and how many of his uh, his team seem to have gone to prison. Um, where do you think the, the the route for him to get essentially white supremacist prison gang uh, terminology uh, into his lexicon is. Have you any sort of ideas there? I guess we can only speculate, but... If, if I had the freedom to speculate, I imagine it would be someone like Stephen Miller in mm. telling him what to say um, in terms of 1488 references that have been thrown around in regard to uh, detention centers and, and legal policy. Um, I think Stephen Miller definitely has a hand in that. Mm. Um, and, and just on 1488, because I think some of our, our our viewers may not be aware of it. It's quite a, an American sort of specific term. Would you just explain that for a moment? Um, yeah, 1488 is is a neo-Nazi slogan, uh, one or a symbol. Um, I, you know, to be honest, right now I couldn't tell you um, the exact origins of the neo-Nazi symbol. But I can tell you that, well, I probably shouldn't say the actual white supremacist slogan, but it's yeah. all about securing a future and, you know, needing to defend people against, like, immigrant hordes that are coming in to destroy, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, but it's like it a 14-word statement, isn't it? It's sort of defending America from the, the immigrants. And then I yeah, think well, the 88 well, is H's, isn't it? Words by Hitler. Hitler, yes. That's yeah, what it yeah. is. Took me a minute there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I I talk to a lot of conspiracy theorists with uh, with various projects that I do, and people always ask me whether it's true that people actually believe this rather than spreading these ideas for other purposes, you know, because they think they're funny in that either bitterly ironic kind of way or ridiculous way, or because they signal group affiliation, because they're useful at forwarding an agenda or, or making a profit or, or gathering power. 
what sense do you get about the Proud Boys and the conspiracy theories like QAnon that they're they're involved with? Um, do you think they're they're taken in by the QAnon uh, conspiracy? Do you think it's tactical, or is it that kind of ironically sharing it, but also there's kind of something to it that you get from a, a, a an eight chan winky face of plausible deniability? Right. Um, I think for some, uh, the smarter ones in the group, kind of a smaller percentage, <laughs> can see it as tactical. And then because the red pill primes them to conspiratorial thinking, again, like once you believe that all your fault, uh, you know, everything that happened to you that hurt you is a result of feminism. Um, it's very easy to go into, you know, George Soros and chemtrails and globalism. Uh, a Proud Boy said that the younger ones who uh, more or less didn't have any game tended to be the more conspiratorial minded ones talking about, you know, he said something about maybe review the transcripts in my head. Uh, <laughs> he said something about uh, I don't need these younger fellows to educate me on 9-11. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. Um, if I can just come back to your Georgetown article, I was really struck by something that you wrote about how um, members are, are encouraged to, to turn any issue or any criticism against them into evidence of their own oppression while discounting the humanity of others. Because that sounds so familiar to what we see with other extreme movements, your know, racism, misogyny, transphobia, anti-Semitism. The idea of claiming victimhood is something we see either formal groups or informal movements doing as a way of grasping the narrative and, and recentering the story in themselves. How much of this do you think is a genuine difference in perception that they actually do genuinely believe and see themselves to be the, the, the victim? And how much do you think of it as, as a, an over ta tactic of rhetoric, essentially, to try and shift the debate and, and avoid accountability? Well, probably have the saying, we don't start fights, we finish them. That's kind of anticipatory self-defense. Um, it's kind of like that scene in fight club where they tell you to get into a fight with somebody and like people realize how hard that is you have to get edgier and edgier and um, so they go to the extent that they'll wear shirts that say Pinochet did nothing wrong and Pinochet despite being a, like a, in, in addition to being a dictator that killed countless people Pinochet used rape as a weapon so to say that Pinochet did nothing wrong is is an endorsement, a subtle endorsement of that. And if you have a heart, if you believe that other people should be treated as human beings, that's going to offend you and that's going to trigger you. And that cruelty is the point. So mm -hmm. if you attack them, they have permission to claim victimhood. They have uh, material for recruitment purposes and they can frame themselves as victims. So when Proud Boys went to uh, an event where proceeds were benefiting an organization that was uh, Women Against Violence Against Women, um, a few people beat them. They then took hospital photos and claimed victimhood and actually did manage to recruit many, many people. So there is... Uh, there is that that level of like psychopathy involved in planning ahead to antagonize and provoke so people can attack you. You can either harm them physically because now you technically have permission in their mind mm -hmm. or you embrace the victim role publicly to say, you know, we just like our president. What's wrong with supporting our president? And then a bunch of men who also might be feeling emasculated are like, 
yeah, this is not right, guys. You know, there's always something that can pull people in that way. And that that's people need to understand that as a recruitment mechanism. They mm-hmm. want you to pay attention to them. They need you to pay attention to them. And that's how they get a lot of their power. Mm-hmm. And that, that's quite a common tactic, I understand, in, in groups that are similar. And someone like Andy No, I know, has kind of uh, weaponized and commodified uh, any uh, assaults on, or, or attacks or threats on his person to be essentially a, a way of amplifying his voice further. So it's it's quite a uh, an effective tactic, I think, because it, I guess, weaponizes the humanity of the other person, the, the human instincts of the other person, uses them against them. Um, what other tactics we need to kind of look at when it comes to discussions with engagements with uh, extremists uh, of this ilk and and sort of generally their their behavior in, in in their recruitment attempts um so crowd boys are hard to classify for uh, two big reasons not just the extremism that becomes uh, like wrapped in the american flag and wrapped in nationalism but with ideological shields so andy no for example is um he's gay and he is asian So when he spreads his narratives, people can say, well, how can we be white supremacists when people like Andy Noe support us? Or how can we be white supremacists when the leader of our organization is Afro-Cuban? How can we have white supremacists or like uh, Charlie Kirk told me something in relation to Candace Owens, you know, uh, when I talked to him when he came to my university, um, would a, would a white nationalist organization have a, like a black student caucus? And I said, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly what they do. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, it, it is. And a, and a, a student in the audience who was black came up and said, you know, I really didn't appreciate that Charlie, because that is the equivalent of saying, but I have black friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I try to use humor to kind of denaturalize what we're seeing and make people see that what we're happening is it is extremism. Um, for example, when MSNBC had on the leader of Patriot Prayer recently in response to events, um, that was a major platform. And we have to think about things in terms of like the harm of platforming these people, uh, you know, can cause. Like you wouldn't have a member of ISIS on to talk about nation building after an attack, right? I mean, it didn't make any logical sense. Um, We have to start seeing these far right figures as equally destructive and harmful, if not more so, because while we've been concerned with the war on terror, homegrown extremism has, it's just like, I don't know what the word is. I can't find the word to talk about how bad it is uh, right now in America. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's very... It's that kind of of knotweed kind of thing of it's it's grown underground and it's uh, emerged and it's just taken over everything. It's it's, it's put its tendrils out and has um, arguably uh, been involved in uh, electing presidents. Um, So we've talked a lot about the the specific US group, uh, Proud Boys, but I I do want to say, given that we have a a larger UK audience, it's worth pointing out this is equally relevant here in the UK, because while we don't have the Proud Boys, the equivalent might be something like Combat 18, National Action, National Front, Sonic Creek Division, the EDL, British First, Democratic Football Lads Alliance. And and for me, when I was looking into the the types of groups that, that could be considered the equivalent, 
that in itself was, was of interest, that there's so many different groups in the same kind of space. And I, and I think, is that equally the case in the US, that there's so many different divisions and, and things? And if so, is that a product of division, either ideological or personality division, or is it something more tactical and intentional to have proliferation? Mm -hmm. I hate to be the one to break this to you, uh, but there is a Proud Boys Britannia Oh, man. <laughs> uh, and, uh, recently, when Fred Perry uh, decided to stop the sale of the black and yellow Fred Perry polos, the uh, the UK Proud Boys were trying to grab as many as they can find to send overseas to their American brothers. Um, so all of the groups that you mentioned, kind of like the soccer hooligan types, the anti-immigrant groups, uh, Proud Boys really blend seamlessly into that because they co-opt the idea you have in mind with skeptics in the pub, creating a community, a place where you can, you know, share a pint and discuss things and, you know, camaraderie. They co-opt that for nefarious ends. Um, so Proud Boys could theoretically position themselves within, you know, Combat Coalition and all of that, where Combat Coalition could technically uh, co-attend event. And then if someone were like, hey, they're here, the Proud Boys can say, well, they're not one of us, but they're yeah. there mingling. They're trying to recruit. Um, yeah. And so that's that's kind of why they're so dangerous is because they can get into all of these spaces through the false idea of like camaraderie and brotherhood and being a fraternal drinking organization. So I really am happy that um, Skeptics in the Pub exists as a, as a community that's antithetical to Proud Boys principles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and we allow everybody to come and not just uh, not just disaffected young men as well. So there's we've got that over them <laughs> over them too. Um, what kind of what marks someone out as being at risk? Uh, I, I, we sort of touch us on, on this a bit, but I think it's worth kind of looking at a little bit more just before we we finish and go for questions. Um, what marks someone as being at risk of, of being pulled into a group? Are there are there warning signs in terms of someone's um, behavior, circumstance, uh, psychology, anything like that that we can look out for? There was a meme that meant to prime individuals and said, you know, people will notice that you're working out more and you're taking care of yourself and they're going to be worried about you because they think you're being radicalized. Um, men who are looking to feel empowered when, I'm sorry to say this, left to their own devices tend to find these male grievance communities instead of things that are actually rooted in psychologically beneficial principles. Um, so being at risk is being in these spaces and taking the red pill without considering its implications. And the red pill, um, in terms of self-empowerment, okay, let me try to think of the image to accompany this. Um, you know how uh, when you have to give a dog a pill you don't just give them the pill, you stick it in peanut butter uh, yeah, or something. Yeah. Um, so the red pill can get stuck in that <laughs> peanut butter of male empowerment, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? um, and they, it's not wrong to improve your life and be better. But when you have that, knowing the odds are stacked against you, mm. knowing that things are against you, knowing that, you know, the racial demographics of your country are changing and you're not going to exist anymore. Like there is a balance between actual self-help and far right thought leaders who are mm -hmm. using self-help as the vector to 
red pill people and recruit them further. And if you want to understand how toxic that ideology is, look at one of the far right thought leaders, Jordan Peterson, and how he's doing right now. That's what happened. Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny you mentioned him because that, that was the next thing I wanted to, to kind of come to because, right? um, you know, it, it's it can be easy to assume that some of the people who end up in these movements are already other, they're already on that path. But it actually wasn't so long ago that if you posted anything critical about Jordan Peterson on the, the, the Facebook page of a skeptics group, you get at least one chap chiming in to say that actually the professor's got a lot of really interesting thoughts if you just listen to all 78 billion hours of, uh, of his material. Um, that mm-hmm. has tailed off since he's gone on his all-beef diet and his treatment for drug addiction in, in Siberia and stuff. Um, but the fact that a minority of people who would see themselves drawn to scepticism can so readily slip into uh, ideas that are pretty far removed from, from reality and, and beyond that path is, is interesting and concerning. So like, how would you say we can go about engaging with the people who might be drawn or attracted to our movement um, or our community, um, but who also find themselves gravitationally pulled towards those kind of entry points into those, those rabbit holes? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in academia, when you cite sources, it's the, the best form is to grab the actual source because then you're not, it's not like telephone where you're speaking about an interpretation of an interpretation of an interpretation, unless you're commenting on that specific interpretation. Um, so what Jordan Peterson does from an academic perspective is a patchwork of ideologies, which isolated and when you take them back to their original roots you know they all have something to offer like Jung when he said until you make the unconscious conscience uh conscious it will you'll go your whole life uh believing it's fate um like there there is value to that that is why Jung and Freud have all left their mark on uh the field of psychology but when you blend it all together and you have what uh YouTuber called Peter Coffin calls that slow drip, uh, that peanut butter of, uh, you know, (laughs) ideology. Um, You have men who are not really embracing being psychologically adaptive and actually empowered. They're, They're going through this watered down patchwork of ideas while victimizing themselves further. It's kind of like how some of the American skeptics can get in with the Christopher Hitchens and all that and then go um, go to attracting critical race theory. It's like a, it's it's supposed to be empowerment, enlightenment, skepticism, perhaps stoicism. But then it gets used for. What's the word? Um, reactionary politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and as uh, as I've kind of pointed out in, in other um, other pieces I've done, a lot of that critical race theory criticism is actually coming out of places that are themselves funded by groups like Sovereign Nations, who are a Christian nationalist organize, organization that spreads anti-Semitic memes. So it's 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 really fascinating that the that people who are drawn to a skeptical movement would then um, be pulled back into what is something that would be so antithetical to, to skepticism because it, it ticks some ideological boxes and, and fulfills some of them, those, those points of, uh, yeah, masculine peanut butter, <laughs> I guess is the, 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 the analogy we're going to be using. Okay, um, come on. 
a thing now. <laughs> uh, I'll have one last question, then we'll go for a break. But um, in the in the work that you, you've you've been doing, you've mentioned uh, having conversations that have been involved with de-radicalizing people and some successes there. Um, what kind of approaches have you found valuable that we could we could learn from and, and try to try to make use of ourselves? So in the in the countering violence extremism community, um, I'll just briefly introduce the the terminological distinctions between de-radicalization and disengagement. Disengagement is rooted more in cognitive schemas. It's not something you could perhaps like measure overtly. It's more nuance. It's more value pluralism. Disengagement is more behavioral. So they associate less. They engage in behaviors. They perhaps reconnect to the networks that they get isolated from during the grooming process. It's behavioral. They seek jobs outside of their spaces. They seek, you know, financial support outside of the Proud Boys and other mm. spaces. Um, so what I do, like I never convince anyone to do something, but if somebody comes to me and says, I'm leaving the organization and I blame you, like people have said, <laughs> jokingly, but still, um, yeah, yeah. that's a responsibility I have to see who I can connect them with um, so they can get support they need. Because if you've ever had a bad relationship um, where you're, you know, his friends become your, her friends become your friends. And, uh, you know, you have to dislodge, not just from the person, but like the family, the whole mm. extended friendship network, perhaps like remaking who you are or like, oh my God, all these problems that I had before are still there. This didn't help, you know, that's a very lonely, isolating process. And it's usually, uh, and this is probably where former extremists are very valuable. Um, they can relate to that because they've been through it. Mm. Um, and so they are very relatable. Uh, whether or not, mm, that's a whole other discussion about countering value and extremism. Former extremists are very, um, they can be very relatable. You know, there's nothing more important when someone feels like they're totally alone and ashamed for someone to say, I've been there. Mm. I understand. Um so what I do is try to connect them to others. And also I have former uh, Proud Boys in the Glitter Pill community. So through the function of that community, it's it's a space where, uh, I mean, it's a really wonderful space. Like you just, there is a mutual respect for each other. There's an understanding. No one's trying to convince anybody. You can get into heated discussions. And it's um, a community it, you've set up, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, these are, you know, these are grassroots problems that require a community response. Like it takes a whole, takes a whole village. So like people who leave an organization uh, like that need like a, a village response. So, mm. you know, jobs, uh, a therapist that they have access to it because that's going to be a, a world of pain they're in if they don't seek that out. <laughs> um, uh, perhaps going back to school and letting the education process do its job. Um, what Proud Boys fear are like critical sources. Um, so they often attack institutions of higher learning by saying they're part of a global agenda when really the function of education is not what to think, but how to think. Uh, and they don't want them to think in different ways because if they mm. do, they might think, um, you know, if everyone around you calls you an asshole, like maybe, maybe we're the assholes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, 
Who said that? <laughs> uh, well, Samantha, uh, thank you so much for what was a really fascinating conversation. I think we're going to have a, a short break now and then we'll be taking questions from uh, the audience. So uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, I hope you had a, a lovely break. I hope you had a good chat. I hope you uh, got another drink. I hope you uh, tipped your bar staff. Um, we're going to be back now for the Q&A after what I, I th hope you'll agree was a really fascinating uh, first half. So please uh, welcome back to the live stream our guest for this evening, Samantha Kutner. Uh, fill the chat with appreciation there. Um, Samantha, thank you so much for, for that conversation. It was uh, it was really fascinating to hear about the, the depth of some of this. We've got some absolutely uh, fascinating questions too. Um, and I'm going to start with a question from uh, Hassan, which is something I, I was also keen to ask you. Um, how do you manage to, say, to stay uh, sane and avoid getting a sense of impending doom on a societal scale when you're researching all of this quite grim stuff? Uh... I have to say, I think I'm one of the more optimistic uh, counterterrorism researchers out there. I uh, and I believe it is the strength of my growing community of glitter pill. Um, it's very easy to adopt a, a bleak future focus when we're inundated with news that everything is bad all the time. But there is really something to embracing the spirit of the community and the collective to grapple with these problems together. Um, Glitter Pill is, is my community. It really started as an inside joke when I was in grad school. Um, I was preparing a training presentation for the Title IX office of my university. And I wanted to explain the concept of getting pilled as a suffix. Mm. Um, so I don't know if you've seen the movie Forrest Gump. But yes, yeah, yeah. So there's a scene uh, when Bubba is talking about all the different kinds of shrimp as they're going through their daily drills. And I had this idea that I passed to my Twitter group at the time. I said, I have this idea of Bubba Gum saying, yeah, you could take the red pill, the black pill, the blue pill, the white pill. And then one of my members said, glitter pill. And it stopped. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and uh, since then, the community has expanded. We're most active on Facebook as a private group right now. Um, but things that I try to prioritize are self-care. Um, because it is very easy in my field, especially, to take ownership, uh, ownership of what are essentially institutional failures. Like, mm -hmm. we didn't break it, and we can't fix it alone. And there's kind of a freedom in that. Um, and it's not um, shirking your responsibilities or anything to take care of yourself. There's a this is idea of martyrdom that you must always be sacrificing, that you must always be willing to have your work, you know, exploited for free labor. And what I try to um, do in Glitter Pill is prioritize, you know, kind of sustainability, anti-capitalist practices, and self-care. Um, and self-care I do through weekly self-care chats where we do, you know, guided meditations and then we just kind of talk about our day. Sometimes we go on the woo-woo side, but I back it up with <laughs> here's empirical basis for why this is important. Here are studies that show meditations affect on like gray matter in the brain. Yeah, and uh, so there is a solid backing that I always try to differentiate between the the woo that gets you into the pastel QAnon territory mm -hmm. and like woo that's actually supported by the science. 
uh, and my community uh, people can support me by joining members, uh, joining, becoming members. Um, I also have a Patreon where others can support. It's uh, patreon.com slash take the glitter pill. Yeah, and, and the mods will put that in the uh, in the chat there as well. Um, you mentioned the, the idea of kind of care and self-care, and that, that brings you back to something that you, you kind of repeated a few times uh, throughout our conversation about care and accountability. Uh, and I think you've kind of you've, you've covered the care quite comprehensively in, in, in the, the conversation and, and there, too. Um, could you speak to the accountability side of it, uh, perhaps? Uh, yes, I created the Proud Boys incident tracking map as an accountability measure because there were so many discrepancies between what members were telling me happened and what actually happened. Um, so I started collecting data. It eventually became the incident map. And now the incident map um, exists as a data-driven rebuttal to the claims that the Proud Boys are just a fraternal drinking organization. I understand how you can get involved with the wrong crowd. You could take the red pill that's in that peanut butter <laughs> and not know. Um, but I also understand the large percentage of members who are very conscious of their manipulations. And that's why I've added the incident map as an accountability measure. And that's why I am a research fellow at the Khalifa Eiler Institute. We're not just tracking Proud Boys incidents. We're not just tracking far right incidents in America. We are tracking and trying to create a comprehensive picture of global far right violence that is impacting us all. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure the mods have got the, the link to that. So I'm sure they'll put that in the chat if people want to check out that uh, that map and understand you know, the full full scale of this. Um, although I guess understanding the scale of this is is uh, a lot easier when, uh, as, as uh, Paul asks in his question, uh, the leader of the free world on TV effectively publicly endorses the, the Proud Boys. Um, Paul asks, it, does that change anything? And if so, how much to have Trump refusing to disavow them and, and, and you know, almost explicitly endorsing them? Um, so extremism researchers have broadly agreed that this was a call to action. And even if extremism researchers did not agree, the Proud Boys themselves saw it as a call mm. to action and made t-shirts with what Trump said, you know, stand, uh, stand down, stand by. Uh, and to give a group like that permission is strategic on Trump's part, veiled in regard to people were questioning where that phrase came from or why it was slipped in. Um, and it has a very high likelihood of contributing to real world acts of violence offline. These aren't just trolls antagonizing people. These are people who, by the time they get to a rally, uh, might have members who are radicalized to the extent, uh, have they, they have dehumanized their opposition to the extent that violence against them becomes a legitimate political option. That's why I try to focus on outreach because I understand there is a point of no return. And I hope through having contact with someone like me uh, who is a feminist and doesn't fit into that mold neatly, mm. um, over time I can help. Um, 
people understand that the world isn't, you don't have to think in binary terms. It's not enemy and supporter. Um, but you know, that's more on the preventative side. And right now we're as a nation or globally in reactionary mode. So there might not be a lot of time for those efforts. Yeah. And, and I guess the, 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 the ticking clock on that is the, the election um, when Trump is also saying uh, he'll have his supporters go out and watch very carefully ballots being cast and be the uh, standing there watching. It seems like the combination of those two things for, to, in the eyes of a, and ears of a, a, a violent extremist group could be enormously dangerous in a month's time, uh, six weeks time. Um Trevor asks on that uh, on that question of um, of of the the violent extremism of this group. Trevor asks, um, has your research led to any personal danger or, or threats to you? I was pulled into a public space reluctantly. That's why I am on Twitter as often as I am. Uh, I was pulled into the public space by Gavin McGinnis, who wrote an article called "Fighting the Media and Academics," where I was the academic he was accusing of being like an Antifa terrorist. Um, he then went to my uh, university and weaponized our complaint system and tried to get my research shut down. That resulted in a six-month-long IRB investigation. Uh, ultimately, I wound. Uh, I received a Research Integrity Award for persisting against the chilling effect for that, mm. and I helped show the university where they were uniquely vulnerable. Um, so when things happen on campus, they tend to reach out to have me like offer advice or consult where I can. Um, the mass harassment campaigns, there weren't a lot of them because I had built up rapport with members where even they said, well, I didn't really see you that way, the way that they're trying to depict you. Um, there are men who engaged in the uh, uh, dehumanization of me through calling attention to uh, body parts or my Jewishness or um, any other comparisons you would like to make. There were mass harassment campaigns by uh, a very small but very vocal contingent of anti-fascists who think that uh, the work that I do is the same thing as being a fascist sympathizer. Um, there were, um, there was institutional opposition, which thankfully is not so much anymore. And then I was, uh, put on a kill list in 2019. Um, thankfully, uh, they found one of the main, uh, people involved. It was a, I don't want to list the name of the organization to, mm. you know, advance that, but, um, thankfully that person was arrested and, and many, many people are being, uh, held accountable within our legal system at the moment. So it was very nice to give a form to the person who helped facilitate that. Um, because when they're anonymous, uh, the terror that they want you to feel, uh, can be very real, even if it's just posturing, you never know. So you have to act as if, um, something could happen. Um, so I have received uh, a lot from everywhere for my work, um, and I would not continue if I didn't believe in my my mission to counter violent extremism. Yeah, and it's it's um, you know to to your enormous credit and, and, and bravery, I guess, that you, you carry on in, under such uh, circumstances. It would be very understandable for people to turn away at those points, but um, yeah, all, all powerful you to, to carry on through all of that. Um, We've got a question here from Eagle, um, who asked about the the incel community, uh, and is that um, any? How does that essentially relate to this cult? Is, is there a good way to prevent, um, as he puts it, sad young virgin boys from becoming a proud boy? 
I got to speak to an up-and-coming incel researcher who asked about the racial politics of the far right. Um, and we had a really great conversation where we were just kind of filling knowledge gaps. Uh, in the incel community, uh, members like or appreciate or can relate to people who they feel are most disempowered. Mm. Um, so in that context, some, uh, some can see black and brown people as being more relevant in their spaces, um, because they're more marginalized and they don't meet the white aesthetic ideal and therefore, um, will not be able to get laid for that reason. Um, but uh, there's two components to uh, white supremacy and white nationalism. One is uh, what my friend Dr. Kate Shaw, genocide scholar, calls culturally normative psychopathy and aggrieved male entitlement. Aggrieved male entitlement is what really unites or could unite the incel community and the Proud Boys community. It's a different approach to things, but they both have the aggrieved male entitlement where incels have these kind of victimhood plus kind of delusions of grandeur the entitlement is really strong but they more like internalize things uh proud boys tend to externalize and seek out uh, harm of their opposition or anyone responsible for the progressive liberal feminist agenda um so you'll see them attack women very frequently um incels do that as well but there are very some very important distinctions to make and for more incel scholarship um there is Dr. Kurt Braddock, who I believe uh, has just received a grant to study uh, incel and the incel community along with Dr. Horgan. Uh, there is Nama Cates, who uh, really is kind of like the Proud Boys whisperer of the incel community. Um, and their podcast is great. I fully support them. Um, there is another academic uh, Brooke Stanley, who wrote uh, One Pill, Blue Pill, Red Pill, Black. Forgive me for the Dr. Zeus mangling of that, but that was the title. <laughs> um, very interesting perspective there. Um, so there is emerging scholarship, uh, and I strongly encourage people to read it from the perspective of people who are really, really in the space. Um, there are many scholars who study primarily jihadism who are transitioning to studying the far right and they will get there. But the people are here. I, there are many, many people that I could share who can definitely offer you a comprehensive non Angela Nagel style of, <laughs> of understanding the groups from the perspective of like actually being immersed in the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that kind of covers, I guess, a lot of the the, the groups. And uh, you mentioned in there some of the personality traits, you know, the the, the uh, aggrieved male entitlement, that kind of thing. Um, Carla uh, Carla Ribeiro asks: uh, Are there personality traits that make you more likely to be attracted to radicalization? I grew up halfway in and halfway out of the Orthodox Jewish Chabad community in Las Vegas. Uh, I, around 11 or 12, became very disillusioned with the religious component, but I still remain very connected to the community. And I think my unique relationship with 
my culture allows me to understand how people are never one thing or the other. You're not like Muslim or British. You can be both. And I think that kind of value pluralism that I learned early on is something I tried to imbue in all of my work and in my community of uh, Glitterville. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, just to clarify, I think Carla was maybe asking about the personality traits that uh, that makes one attracted to radicalization, that makes one prone to uh, or susceptible to <laughs> radicalization. Okay. Not no. that we don't appreciate the biography. <laughs> um, you know, every person is different. Um, uh, there is, I've read of members who had experienced trauma, uh, some very sad things that occurred in their lives. They're trying to make sense of it. In regard to personality traits, um, I do know that some of them may have grown up in, in, I I like to get more into the behavioral side. Uh, you know, uh, some people may grow up in environments where, um, the female is the sole provider or there's like a single parent home and the structure that they could have is not quite there. So the appeal of the structure of like these rigid hierarchies uh, could be a way to kind of get back at the parents, uh, like a rebellion and a kind of like call, maybe a veiled, you know, call for help. Um, there is a psychological rigidity, uh, that comes with it. Um, and I know that the term toxic masculinity is a buzzword that gets thrown around, but it's really, uh, in excess of masculinity. Um, if you grow up being socialized to only safely express anger and you learn very quickly when you try to access other emotions, it might be men who want to beat you up for it because they perceive you to be weak uh, or women who are so conditioned to need the white, uh, no, I don't want to say white savior. I was going to say white knight, um, but none of those sound really good right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, the you know the the hero to save the damsel in distress. This is all social conditioning on on men and women's part, and there's a lot of unlearning that needs to occur. I believe that what draws proud boys is this desire to understand the world, but through this very rigid masculine lens that is ultimately maladaptive. Um, so, in terms of psychological traits, I'd prefer to just kind of see us all as products of our environment. Um, and uh, I do seek to help create spaces where men and women can talk about these issues together without feeling judged or threatened. It's why I created the Based and Book Pilled series. It's uh, an Instagram live reading of short, bite-sized sources, because um, all of our attention spans can be fairly low these days, um, that introduce nuance and complexity. Proud Boys have uh, joined it and have not trolled. Some do want to engage, and on some level they understand, may not to the full extent at this point, but the red pill they've taken is not the complete picture. Like there's a there's an actual red pill behind the red pill. <laughs> Peanut butter. <laughs> uh, and a part of my role is to, to help them just like, you know, nobody is telling you what to think. But there is so much information out there. Why limit yourself to this very narrow thing that is ultimately going to harm you in the long run in terms of being able to uh, be in the world? 
if I could just pick up on a, a couple of things that you said in there that that chimed with some of the experiences I have with um, some of the work I've done researching and, and being around things like the flat earth community, which, uh, although nowhere near as harmful and certainly not violent, I, I think does I, I would I would equally classify as kind of a radicalized thing. And, and one of the things I found quite frequently was people that I found in that movement often would express having gone through some sort of traumatic event. Uh, you know, one of the lead flat earthers in the UK was a volunteer fireman when 9-11 happened. He was in New Jersey and he found that an incredibly impactful traumatic event in his life, had a, a self-described midlife crisis a couple of years later, uh, and now is a, a leading flat earther, lives an off-the-grid lifestyle, drinks his own urine and thinks it can cure cancer and, and has all sorts of quite out there beliefs. Um, and I found that lots of people were expressing similar things. I was going through the worst moment in my life and then I found the flat earth and it all made sense. And I think some of the people I found had maybe even gotten over those traumas, those personal crises, maybe a mental health crisis, but hadn't realized that in the process of that that thing they'd gone through, they'd switched tracks and now we're heading off in a completely different direction, a different path. Um, so even with their, 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 their having full control of themselves and understanding of where they are and, and, and being in a much more comfortable position they don't realize that they switch paths at one point in, in that kind of the place um, do you think there's any echoes of that in, in things like the proud boys recruitment and the people who end up in the proud boys yeah um the term that comes to mind is cognitive openings uh, a proud boy was going through a divorce and legal hassles and in a kind of very um like a period of his life that was filled with turmoil and uncertainty. And he told me that he watched five hours of Gavin McGinnis's content and then he was sold and became a proud boy. And this proud boy would later go on to try to join more clandestine terrorist organizations. So um, they are a radicalization vector in that regard. And it's very hard. I mean, what you touched on with, with people going through something where they're like, please give me a meaning, please help me frame this experience um, where it could be empowering, but it's kind of like training wheels. It's like this got you so far and now it's time to embrace different perspectives and nuance and complexity mm. and see that maybe this was a temporary thing. But what I can think of in um, Proud Boys really goes back to relationships in general. When you go through a bad breakup and you're with your guy friends and they're like, man, she was a bitch. You're so much better off. You know, when you're hurt and you're more prone to pulling inward or feeling ashamed, that initial like validation can feel really good. And you're like, oh, yeah, you're right. Right. Mm. Um, the problem is, like, say you have another friend that's like, oh, hey, she's a bitch. And guess what? All women are like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All women are like that, you know, like that, um, that is a crutch. That is a temporary moment of like venting your frustration, maybe. Um, like, I guess the girl equivalent would be uh, you go through a bad breakup and one of your friends was like, oh, look, he has a new girlfriend and she looks like a effing dog. You know, like it's not nice. It's petty. It's ugly. But it's really not even about those people. It's just meant to validate the emotion of like, you're better off, you're better off, right? It is when you get stuck in that all men are like this, all women are like this, um, that you get into problems because nobody wants to be around someone who is continually blaming people for problems they refuse to tackle themselves. 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we have an anonymous question here uh, who asks uh, around those similar kind of themes um, in terms of traits, life conditions, that the, the things that lead people to be a, a proud boy. Um, are those, in your your opinion, similar to what would turn others in, in different cultural or religious contexts into extremists in those contexts? Is it a similar kind of uh, overlay? But this is the the way that uh, that plays out in uh, sort of Western US uh, sort of centric um, culture. Like, are there jihadist incels? <laughs> yeah, or the, the the things that uh, that turn uh, your average Muslim person into uh, a jihadist, or your average kind of other um, moderate religious person into an extremist. Are the 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 pathways similar to what to, to those that turn uh, yeah disenfranchised young men into into proud boys? I remember, I believe it was ISIS leadership saying that they actually wanted some type of state repression or reaction to a terrorist attack where they overly police the Muslim community, which would confirm for their potential recruits that the uh, the Western world they're living in does not want them and that can mm-hmm. further isolate them. Um, so uh, there are many different pathways to recruitment. But it is finding things where, like, you evoke that confirmation violence, uh, by <laughs> confirmation violence, confirmation <laughs> bias. I mean, it could be there, but, <laughs> um, you know, so uh, an average Muslim person could identify with the plight of Syrian refugees and want to help them and support them. And perhaps in a video where people say where you can support, there could be recruiters waiting to say, um, wouldn't the idea of, uh, you know, a caliphate be wonderful? And obviously I'm more in the far right realm than I am these days. There's definitely um, amazing researchers in the jihadism space. I would say um, uh, Amar would be one. Uh, I-, I can get into a full list or like give you a list afterwards. But um, there are there is so much scholarship that has come since uh, 9-11 on, on the pathways to recruitment that way. I am very excited to be in the far right space, but there are many, many commonalities between the recruitment process across the uh, different cultures. Mm. Um, actually, picking up on that question quite quite neatly, we've got a question here from uh, Anonymous who asks, um, are the Proud Boys religious? Are they like overtly or implicitly or, or what's the religiosity of, of the group generally? It's hard to generalize, but there are many like trad Catholics, trad um, trad Christians, um, religious fundamentalists. I interviewed a proud boy who was a religious fundamentalist. They're not uh, representative of the entire group, but wow, those conversations. I'll have to go through all those transcripts sometime. I've had some very wild conversations. Like there was someone who, who said a... I am completely objective because I believe God and he has the complete objective truth. Okay. And, uh, to argue with. <laughs> and he, you know, and he was like saying something about, how, I think he was trying to kind of like red pill me in my own way, <laughs> you know, like God, you know, God, uh, uh, God's calling out for you. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't hear it. Uh, but can we continue with the, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I think that, Religion for a long time had that role of community. And I really like what what you have done with skeptics in the pub because there is this alternative community that can exist whether you're religious or not, you know, 
and and talk to each other about this. I think um, because a lot of people just on a massive scale might be losing their their faith, the community aspects of religion are getting ignored. Um, and the communities that are taking them up could have that really aggressive, fierce, like overperformance of both masculinity and religiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually have a, a question here from another anonymous um, who's asking about the, the Proud Boys movement. Is it actually that big um, or are we in some way creating them by giving them relevance beyond what's proportionate to, to the size they actually are? So how, how big are we talking, do you think? Right. Are we like memeing them into existence? Um, yeah, yeah. So one of the uh, more recent assessments was somewhere in the vicinity of 3,000. The chairman has said the number is closer to 8,000, but that is uh, what I believe, based on my uh, my scholarship on the group, uh, to be, uh, <laughs> it's not an academic term, but a flex of sorts. You know, or like they they say, like in the last event in in Portland, they were hoping for two thousand. They really got somewhere between three hundred and five hundred. Yeah, um, yeah. It's kind of like, don't say the turnout was small. Don't say it's small. <laughs> I guess they're not the first fascist group to uh, overinflate their numbers. Uh, I don't know if they have membership numbers, but if they start at one or two thousand, it can suddenly seem like you have a lot more num- uh, lot more members than you you did, which is obviously what uh, what the Nazis uh, what the Nazis did. Um, we have a question here from Smile and Subvert, uh, is that the name? And um, they're asking about the tactics that, that we use to sort of counter this, because we're seeing a lot of this stuff at the moment. Do you, do you think that fighting fascists on the street or counting on the streets is a constructive way to, to challenge? Um, or would you think ignoring their marches work better in the long term? Where do you, where do you stand on it, really? What people need to understand about rallies is that they are not to defend liberty or protect or save the children or uh, wave the flag. These are violent shows of force intended to intimidate marginalized communities and make them feel unsafe. They represent the violent denial of diversity, which Khalifa Eiler tracks. And there are some anti-fascists who feel that violence is the only language that the violent fascists understand. Uh, I believe the majority of anti-fascists, actually I'm not going to speak for them, um, but I've interviewed as many Proud Boys as I have anti-fascists. And from the sample that I've interviewed, the majority of them feel that simply outnumbering uh, the the fascist contingent is an effective strategy. Some people in the Pacific Northwest, like popular mobilization, have sought to create a carnivalesque atmosphere where there's like bubbles, this kind of a rave style um, to highlight the absurdity and use that mm-hmm. back. Um, some use humor. Some have used uh, crowdfunding, uh, which is like a very creative way to do it. Uh, at a neo-Nazi march, people said, you know, for every five or ten individuals or for every individual that's counted, um, we're going to donate this much to an organization that, um, you know, defends immigration policy or something productive, right? So they mm-hmm. show up with the intent to intimidate and they actually wind up crowdfunding for the very causes that they're against. I think that's a very creative strategy and tactic. Um, but then there are people like me or like, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to understand what drives people to extremism so I can 
help perhaps facilitate the disengagement of members who are about to make a decision that they can't take back. Mm -hmm. Um, But that type of work um, can only go so far given the volume of violence that we're seeing. So I believe that there are a diversity of tactics that are appropriate. Um, I would hope that it wouldn't come to violence, but uh, just as an academic exercise, I can see from a pragmatic standpoint, if fascists are coming to engage in a violent show of force, um, if there is no force to oppose them, I I think that might not be good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, we have a question sort of related to that from Dave, the drummer, who says, uh, would it be easier to deal with uh, extra extremist groups like this if they didn't have guns? He said he's hoping on the UK's behalf that that's, you know, the answer is a yes. Um, but I guess it does sort of raise a question about the, the the Second Amendment and how tied in they are to that. And do we see Proud Boys embracing the Second Amendment in those kind of dangerous ways? Yes. Before the Proud Boys, uh, you know, this goes back to the history of the NRA's kind of recruitment narratives about fear equaling consumption. After every mass shooting, there was the fear that the guns would be taken away. Um, and now there's like different laws related to Second Amendment that are trying to like make the guns like more restricted. But in America, um, that is just not going to fly with people. Like we are a heavily armed and increasingly more unstable uh, country as a whole mm-hmm. with many people who have purchased guns without recognizing like on a subconscious level they are purchasing guns because they fear black and brown bodies as an existential threat Mm -hmm. and when our current president gives people who are likely to be armed permission to stand down and stand by it will not take much to I mean, we're, we're already in the conditions where violence is occurring and is likely to increase um, Trump in the first debate managed with like a one-two punch to s- cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election process mobilize his base and have that veiled call to violence if he is elected, and this is what I said on the Loopcast, which everybody was like, Jesus Christ. And I'm like, yeah, please get on my level. Um, if Trump is elected, the targeting of their perceived opposition, you'll, you see this in Portland with the way they're going after journalists and anyone suspected to be Antifa will continue and uh, increase. Mm. If Biden wins, um, here's the problem that... Um, that many in the UK might not understand. Um, Many Democrats right now are going to do the responsible thing and have mail-in ballots. Many Republicans are going to vote in person. So the immediate results are, I don't want to forecast, but based on what I know now, which could change based on what I know right now, um, in the, um, the immediate aftermath of the election, you might see a uh, Trump will have the the approval rate. Like he'll he will have technically won, won the election. The volume of mail-in ballots that are going to be counted and coming in later will probably reflect the opposite. 
Mm-hmm. If Trump installs a Supreme Court justice to stop the counting of those ballots, he could theoretically win and remain in power. Mm-hmm. If he loses either in the first election or when, if if by some miracle all the mail-in votes are actually counted, Proud Boys will be one of the groups that engages in essentially armed insurrection. That's yeah. the severity of the threat that we're facing. And I know it sounds alarmist, but I've been an alarmist for a very long time and people are starting to get there. So maybe we can all get there and, and do something about it because that's where yeah. we're at now you were were an alarmist before it was popular essentially um we have a a couple of questions uh here um around the same theme so i'll ask them both together because i think they sort of fit together um feigl asks are people like jordan peterson self-aware when it comes to their role in radicalizing men or do you think they believe what they preach Uh, and also grimbeard asks given their anti-feminism is there a a, a clear overlap between fans of uh, the between the proud boys and fans of Jordan, women are chaos, Peterson. Um, what, what do you make of those? Uh, there's definitely an overlap. Uh, one of the one of the things that is most frustrating about Proud Boys is almost sometimes the complete absence of self-awareness. Um, I believe Jordan Peterson, I don't think he's evil. I think through his reaction to a bill being passed in Canada that he misinterpreted, He got kind of thrust into this position where he was considered the expert and the the source of it because he appealed to those emotions and those grievances. Um, I don't think he's self-aware about the harm he is causing, but I I do, and I don't want to speculate on what he's going through right now. I imagine it's a lot, but um, I do think that maybe there is some discrepancy between helping people in that way and not being authentic as a as a leader who uh, perhaps takes their own advice or maybe is the product of their own advice um the easiest way uh to run away from your problems is to try to solve everyone else's it's it's very hard to look inward and take radical ownership of the things that are within your control. Most people, especially in the activism space, everywhere, um, they want to impact their environment and they're thinking bigger, they're thinking outward, they're thinking in terms of perhaps policies and things that can be changed. But really the change starts with that courage to look inward. I don't think Jordan Peterson has done that to the extent that he might actually be a helpful leader and a lot of the lost boys who find him really just want that techno parent um they might not be right but this is a warm fatherly kermit-like figure telling you well maybe just as well telling you uh you know the world is this way because young and this interpretation he could like spin a very nice complex web but it's not academically rigorous or sound Mm. and it's ultimately maladaptive because it enhances male victimhood when it could, if you were to really go back to basic psychological principles, um, it can help people be less psychologically rigid and more psychologically flexible. Um, when you're, 
in that mind of, you know, improve your life, knowing the odds are stacked against you, you're just going to be like stagnant, angry, and looking for people to blame. And as more things happen to you that you can't accept responsibility for, the anger you are going to, you're going to be against the people you think are causing it. Um, so I think that Jordan Peterson doesn't have the self-awareness to understand the harm that he's done to people who really do need help. Um, and if he wanted to understand that, um, perhaps he could connect to things like mantherapy.org, um, which normalizes just men being vulnerable and asking for help. Um, or talking uh, or listening to Brene Brown's uh, speech on vulnerability and where she is vulnerable. And then men reached out to her and said they were terrified of being vulnerable. There are many sources out there that can help men give form to what they're experiencing, but they're taking the red pill and going completely off the path of that. Um, so a lot of my work as the Proud Boys Whisperer is to help kind of introduce actually like beneficial things to people who need it rather than you're evil, you're stupid, you're lazy. I troll them. No doubt I troll them uh, pro-socially. <laughs> but um, but it's always an invitation for more dialogue. It's mm -hmm. never to shut down conversation. Um, and I think that uh, Jordan Peterson did what he could in the position he found himself. And uh, maybe if he comes out of this on the other side, he may reconsider things. Um, but I, I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we have a question here from uh, Mr. Sandwich, uh, who asks, uh, do you think uh, the Gamergate movement was used as a recruitment pool for organizations like the Proud Boys? Most definitely. Gamergate is the, uh, the seminal event where all the disparate collectives of the male grievance community converged. Um, that is where you see organization strategy planning. That's where you see mass harassment campaigns, um, most definitely. Um, so the Gamergate style tactics continue. The DARVO tactics, um, that stands for deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. It comes from the field of uh, intimate partner violence. Jennifer Freyd has a lab in Oregon where she goes into it in more detail. It's basically um, when, uh, an abuser is accused of wrongdoing, the response that they engage in shifts the blame from them and puts the burden onto the person making the accusation. So if you say something in America like, racism remains a prevalent issue, or we need to uh, understand the lineage of the transatlantic slave trade, and a far right person says, you must really hate white people, mm -hmm. don't you? Now if you don't understand that's a tactic to make you doubt yourself so you back down, you might try to engage with them and say, no, I'm not racist because blah, 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 right? And that's how they kind of, it's, it's like a red herring and a way to evade detection. And then when it's done Gamergate style in the form of like a mass harassment campaign where you should just get like fat, ugly, Jewish, whatever it is, um, it's, it's toxic and uh, it is really like the primary communication style of the far right. Um, we have another question from Trevor, uh, who uh, asks, and I think you covered it a little bit in our conversation, but maybe you can go into a little bit more detail. Um, have the Proud Boys tried to make contacts or links with fascists abroad, particularly in the UK? I know that you've enlightened us that there is a uh, Proud Boys Britannia. Um, how active are they and, and have they made links to any other fascist groups that you're aware of? 
I think they're smaller because your your uh, free speech laws actually kind of work. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they are more like endorsement. They're, they're sharing American news stories in their uh, circles on Telegram. They're taking photos of the Fred Perrys. They're planning to ship over. Um, they definitely believe in those tenants. They think the West is the best, but what they're identifying with is actually, you know, uh, whiteness. And then, so that's back to uh, culturally normative psychopathy, a grief male entitlement. Those two components uh, are definitely things that are exported into uh, Western countries. And uh, they have the ability to recruit more anti-Muslim sentiment. Uh, and also we have another one of ours, uh, Steve Bannon, who made a very concerted effort to flood European uh, stations with uh, Breitbart news that spread xenophobia. So you're seeing a very um, uh, anti, you know, a very xenophobic contingent. I think that's a very salient factor within the Proud Boys abroad. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, there was a question here from uh, from Grimbid um, who asks uh, if their leader is Afro-Cuban, is it accurate to, to consider Proud Boys a white supremacist group? And, and if not, how should they be categorized? So um, the concept of a multiracial white supremacist organization is very confusing to many people. Um, and I would like to try to explain it because it is a very complex topic. And if I get in jargony realm, uh, please feel free to ask me to clarify. I'm happy to do that. Um, so Proud Boys really believe that they are defenders of the West, that the West is facing decline and they are the brave champions who are going to revive and restore Western civilization. But in America and abroad, Western civilization is really code for white. Mm. And in America and abroad, there's not really a unifying white culture, even white European tribes fought with each other. So whenever Americans imagine like a unity, like it's just not there because again, they don't get actual information. Um, the, when they identify with white, what are they actually identifying with? What are multiracial proud boys identifying with when they identify with the West, which is really white? Um, white, can be distilled into two components. That is the uh, what Dr. Kate Shaw, genocide scholar and friend of mine, calls culturally normative psychopathy and aggrieved male entitlement. And this is how the multiracial members of the Proud Boys transcend their ethnic and racial limitations through identifying with the West, through identifying with those two mm. components. So that is how you can see them as a multiracial white supremacist organization. Uh, with the multiracial members, there could be some who want to be contrarian, but they get put into the role of being that ideological shield, the Candace Owens, the Ben Shapiros. Um, so regardless of what they feel is their right to be contrarian and all that, they are being used in the service of recruitment fodder. Mm. Um, I think we'll have uh, one more question. Um, uh, uh, so this last question is from uh, Chris Malburn, and he asks, um, do you have any tips for how to spot friends or acquaintances who might be on their way down the, the alt-right Proud Boys rabbit hole and, and, and then to steer them away from that? 
Um, one of the things is a new, sorry, I'll grab my pencil. I can't think without writing. I'm just one of those people. Um, <laughs> one of the things to be aware of is a preoccupation with uh, a civilization they feel to be in decline. Um, a preoccupation with like everything's going to hell. Uh, and, uh, I don't want to say getting into history is a bad thing because it's not. Um, but there is a historical revisionism. So if you ever have a conversation and someone starts talking about um, something that you know not to be true, you can probably, I mean, sorry, not to be true in the context of political affairs, you can probably trace it to a far right news organization who has put those narratives there. Like there are some proud boys I interact with where I can like literally see their thought process and the sources that they're consuming that made them come to that conclusion. Um, one of the things is like the, the West created slavery, but we alone abolished slavery that comes mm. from canon. Um, uh, anything that is fiercely anti-immigrant and especially right now with, um, save the children um if someone is really getting into save the children but talking about the global cabal of people doing this or making allusions or references to george soros perhaps talking about 5g getting angry if someone gets angry of the fact that you're wearing a mask and it believe it to be a hoax um that is probably a tell that the content that they have been consuming is is feeding them or flooding their information ecosystem with this information, which they feel to be real, right? Um, if they are saying, you know, if they're talking about the anarchist threat without actually considering the data or using false statistics to highlight the fact that the far left is the bigger threat, and they're unable to entertain the possibility and the reality that the Department of Homeland Security acknowledges of, of far-right violence and extremism in America, um, that they're not open to that. Um, if, you know, probably being on the front lines, front lines, taking it down to the like most basic level, if you have a friend, girl or guy, well, preferably a guy, who has experienced a, a bad relationship or is just getting out of one or experiencing a major life transition, the best thing you can do is be there to support them. And if they start talking about Jordan Peterson, don't attack like, oh, wow, Jordan Peterson, you know, lobster boy, whatever, right? Don't go down that route right away. Um, just... Uh, say, oh, I, I, he seems to speak on this theme and this theme. I know a great TED talk on this, or I know someone who talked about this. It really helped me. Uh, and, and talking to them in the, in, in the service of being their friend, a family member, not judging them, understanding that like, um, pain is, nobody wants to grapple with it. And everyone likes to make sense of things to minimize their own, uh, pain and uh, what did I write down? Um, no, that's for another time. But um, <laughs> our, our brain tricks us into doing all these things to avoid pain. Um, so really, just being empathetic, understanding. If they start to pull away more, um, really just check on your friends in general. You never know what they're going to be going through. Um, the front lines is really way more basic. You know, do, do they have support that they need? 
Are they going through a rough time? Do they have access to resources? Um, is the current situation something they feel powerless to stop? What can you do to help make people feel more empowered? Um, maybe taking it down back to that level of just we need to be in our communities and we need to utilize our communities to help those who are most susceptible to becoming radicalized. Yeah, and if I can add anything to that, because I occasionally have some of those those conversations, the one thing I, I typically point out as well is is trying to recognize what someone's value set is in what they're saying and try to then uh, find values that you align on so that they can feel like you're sympathetic to what they're what they what they value, and then try to to talk about the the actions and the details uh, with regards to those values. Once they once they recognize that you acknowledge the value that they have, because um, otherwise, if you if you talk to someone who, for example, is anti-vax, um, and you say you're killing kids, you don't give a shit about kids, you're the reason that uh, people are people are ill. Um, their value is obviously I protect, I want to protect kids. And so they will see you as attacking that value rather than attacking the action. And if you can first align on the value, say we both want to attack kids, and this is why I think the way you're going about it might not be great. Let's talk about it. Then at least you can recognise that they're they're not evil in their intent. They just they have good values, but they may have good values, but misguided in, in the way they play those out. Um, if I can just <laughs> stitch that on to the end, if if that's uh, that's okay. Oh, definitely. Like you can't shame people into action. You can shame them perhaps out of doing something, but to engage in behaviors that can actually help them, shame is not the mechanism that you use to do that. Mm. Uh, well, Samantha, thank you so much for what I'm sure everybody agrees was a really fascinating conversation. Um, I know that the the mods have got um, links of yours that they're going to put in in the chat to direct you to to uh, direct people to your work. Um, where's the best place that they should uh, start uh, of all the stuff that you do? Do you think? A good start would be Twitter, which is kind of a hellscape right now. Um, <laughs> the uh, website, proudboyswhisperer.com. Um, the Glitter Pill community, the first primary access point is through um, the Patreon uh, account. Uh, that's kind of the function of support and also vetting people to make sure before I add them into the private group that they're actually contributing community members. Um, and for more about the most recent work, uh, the New York Times article I was interviewed in yesterday uh, can offer more insight. Uh, as a research fellow at the Khalifa Eiler, the Khalifa Eiler Institute, uh, we think that we need to show the violent denial of diversity. We need to make it visible. We need people to understand in the most concise way possible. So you can follow them on Twitter. It's at K-H-A-L-I... K-H-A-L-I... The mods are definitely putting in the chat right now. I-H-L-E-R. It's a combination of Asma Khalifa, her last name, and Bjorn Eiler, his last name, because they're in that partnership together. Um, KhalifaEiler.org would be where you can see the website. Uh, Twitter is just that handle. And they also have a Patreon, which has Khalifa Eiler at the end of the title. Um, so that's all the care, accountability, community resources I, I have at the moment. Uh, and you're always welcome to reach out to me um, through uh, Twitter DMs or email. There's going to be a bit of a delay right now. Um, but I will respond um, at, in a timely manner, as timely as possible. <laughs> 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, for such a fascinating and, and important and uh, terrifying and enlightening uh, work that you're doing. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, and everybody sort of give all the appreciation you can in the Twitch comments for what I'm sure you agree was a, a really, really fascinating uh, insight into, into these, uh, these extremist groups and, and their impact on society. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more skeptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.